All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to gather together, to fellowship around your word, to be an encouragement to one another by our very presence together, by our desire to know your word and to apply it in our lives, that we might be transformed from the inside out, that you might uh, change us, transforming the way we think from thinking as the world thinks to thinking as you would have us to think. Help us to understand your plans and purposes as we study Uh, continue our study in Matthew 24 and our Lord's uh, greatest uh, teaching on end times and on prophecy. And we pray that you would help us to understand these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, and this morning we're going to cover the verses 15 through 22, and we're going to see how God is going to provide for those in the last half of the tribulation, God's grace provision for those in the uh, worst, most intensified stage of the tribulation period. Uh, as we look at this passage, I've outlined about six questions that we need to address. Some will be addressed quickly. Some will take a little more time. Uh, the first is we need to do a little review in answering the question, what is the connection of Matthew 24, 12 uh, through, uh, 12 through, excuse me, Matthew, 20, that should be Matthew 24, 15 to 22. That's a typo there, 24, 15 to 22, and how that fits with the previous context. Second question is what is the abomination of desolation in Daniel? That's what the first verse says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, well, what in the world is that talking about? Has that occurred before, or is that something that is yet future? And in conjunction with that, answering the question, how does that connect with other prophecies, especially in Second Thessalonians and Revelation chapter 12? Third question, what should be uh, their response And who is responsible for this response? As he gives this warning to that generation, what are they supposed to do with this warning? And who is responsible for responding that way? Uh, Fourth question is, how will God protect and provide for them in the wilderness? As we understand this passage, he's telling all of the Jewish believers in Israel to flee into the mountains of Judea. Well, how does he? Ex- how is he going to provide for them if they are told to flee immediately without going to the grocery store, or, uh, packing their uh, uh, their go bag to get out of the house in a hurry? They're not even to go get it. They're just supposed to leave. So, how will he provide and protect for them? Fifth, what does it mean that the days will be cut short? 
That's what we see when we get down to verse 21, something a lot of people have made an issue out of, and that is that uh, unless these days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. What does it mean in that passage? Sixth, and what should be our response? There are some implications of what is being said here that uh, talk that impact how we think and how we respond to issues in life. So first of all, that first question with the typo in it, what's the connection between Matthew 24, 15 to 22 and the previous context? This is important. As we've looked at this, this takes place. The events in Matthew uh, 24 and 25 all represent one discourse, one teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in response to two basic questions that his disciples asked uh, once he had crossed out of the temple and taken his seat on the Mount of Olives. They came asking him privately, tell us, first question is, when will these things be? And that is specifically related to his statement that the temple would be destroyed, no stone would be left on top of another, that all of the temple buildings uh, would be torn down. That was the, the focal point of his saying, not the retaining wall, which is there today, the western wall, but the temple buildings. And second, what will be the sign of your coming? And as I've pointed out, the sign of his coming is really not mentioned again until we get down into verse uh, 30 when we're told then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And that's at the end of this period that we describe as the tribulation period. I've pointed out that we have to understand this in context. Jesus is talking to his Jewish disciples who are believers, but they're still Old Testament believers. He's talking to them as Jewish believers about uh, Jewish prophecy, specifically related to this concept of the kingdom. And we've talked about that, that the kingdom's a major theme throughout Matthew. It is talking about the promise from the Old Testament of this literal uh, geophysical kingdom ruled by the Messiah on the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. So he's talking to them because they want to know what's going to be the sign of your coming, that is your coming to establish this kingdom not coming in the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, when we're told that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. That is talking about everyone in this age who trusts in Christ is in Christ, and when Christ returns in the clouds, we will be uh, taken to heaven with him. If we're alive, we it follows uh, the uh, transfer of the dead, the rapture of the dead uh, in Christ. They receive their resurrection body, and then within a nanosecond of that, we are taken to be with the Lord in the clouds and the air. And so uh, that is based on believing in Christ. That's one reason it's so important for us to give the gospel to people. We never know when the rapture will occur. It could be today, could be tomorrow, could be next week. It is imminent, but it is not necessarily soon coming. Uh, just because we see things that we think are uh, indicators doesn't mean they are. There are no signs for the rapture. So... 
The second thing I've emphasized is the Olivet Discourse is the last thing Jesus said to the Jews about Israel. He's talking about Israel in this two chapters, not the church. Nothing in the Olivet Discourse is about church-age believers or has direct application to church-age believers. There may be implications, but no direct application. We're not the ones who are being told that when you see this sign, run and flee to the mountains. Okay, those who are in Judea at that time, are to, they're the only ones who can apply that. And the application is to run and flee to the mountains. That's how you apply that text. You don't apply it by any other means. Fourth, all living church-age believers are raptured, as I said a minute ago, and taken to heaven before the beginning of the tribulation. Now, the time frame for this as I pointed out, and we'll get into this a little more this morning, is in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, a period that is described as Daniel's 70 weeks due to a prophecy there that God has decreed 70 periods of seven for Daniel and for his people. 70 times seven is 490. It's too short to make it days uh, or weeks, it's per- it's a period of seven, seven years, so it's a period of 490 years. That last year is described as the 70th year, and it's usually broken down into two periods, each three and a half years in length. The first half is what I have said is described in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. That is called by Jesus in verse 8 at the end of his description of those trends. He says, these are the beginning of sorrows. That's what happens at the beginning. It's the beginning literally of labor pain. Something is being given birth to. That's just the start of the labor pains. What's being given birth to is the kingdom. The intensification of those labor pains occurs in the second half. You have increased labor pains, and at the end of that section in Matthew uh, 24:14, Jesus says, and after those things, then subsequently, then the end will come. So we see that the first three and a half years are the beginning of sorrows, and the second three and a half years, there will then be increased persecution of Jews after the Antichrist breaks a covenant. In the first half of that 70th week, the Antichrist, it begins with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel for peace. So Israel is kept secure under that covenant for that first three and a half years. They will hear of wars and rumors of wars around them, but they are kept uh, kept secure. But the Antichrist is going to break that covenant in a horrific way in the middle of the week, in the middle of that week, at, after three and a half years. And this is what we're going to be looking at today as the abomination of desolation. So this first half was called the beginning of birth pangs, where there'll be false messiahs that come up. Many will be deceived. This occurs and increases during the second half. Then there's going to be a rise in um, uh, anti-Semitism in the first half, and it really intensifies in the second half. Wars, rumors of wars will be heard, and there will also be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. None of All of these are global in impact. They are worldwide. They are not minor things. So where we think of and hear of an earthquake in Mexico City or San Francisco or California or somewhere else in the world, those are but foreshadowings. These will be on a massive scale. 
Right now, we, we think it's terrible if there's an earthquake that registers 7 or 8 on the Richter scale. I imagine the earthquakes that are described in Revelation during the first seal judgments, during the first half, are going to be, since it's a geometric scale, it will be on the measure of 17, 18, or 19 on the Richter scale. Massive worldwide destruction. So these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, as I pointed out the last time, the way to understand this is to follow the thens in your English Bible. That represents a Greek word, tote, which means then the next thing. And that's how Matthew uses it most of the time. Every now and then he uses it in the sense of then at that time. But as we've seen throughout this section, he uses it as then, that is, following this event the next event. So Jesus says in verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows, then they will deliver you up. That is, after this period, then the next stage, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. There will be hostility towards the Jews. There will be increased um, uh, anti-Semitism and what passed as the Holocaust, the Shoah, uh, that took place during World War II when the Nazis attempted to eradicate all of the Jews in the world. That was their goal, not just in Europe, but in the whole world. You may not know it. I didn't know it until recently. But there were uh, massive roundups of Jews in North Africa, in, in uh, Libya and Tunisia and other areas of North Africa where you had many Sephardic Jews who'd lived for centuries. They were rounded up by the Nazis when they had control of those areas, and they were shipped to Italy and then to concentration camps. So the Holocaust was not limited to Western Europe. Their goal was worldwide. But that was only a type or a foreshadowing of the level of anti-Semitism that will break out during the tribulation period. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations, literally all Gentiles, uh, for my name's sake. Because This is talking about especially Jewish believers. And then we read this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. See, there's that word then again indicating, and then the next thing that happens is the end will come. That is the end of this period of Daniel's uh, 70th week. I pointed out last time a thought that may be new for some of you, and that is that the gospel of the kingdom is not the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It includes the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's more than that. It is the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel that includes uh, the gospel for salvation, for individual salvation, but also includes the added information that the kingdom is about to come. And this was the message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus took that message up, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent out his disciples only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not to Gentiles. He prohibited them to go to the Gentiles because the kingdom was a Jewish kingdom. And he said, go to the house of Israel and the house of Judah and announce, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel kingdom. Dwight Pentecost went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago at, at a ripe old age of, in his late 90s. He was 98 or 99, 
and was considered one of the great prophecy scholars of the uh, 20th century. He was on faculty at Dallas Seminary for many, many years, wrote an excellent book on the life of Christ on the basis of about um, 45 or 50 years of teaching the life of Christ, wrote the message, that is the gospel of the kingdom, had both a soteriological, that's salvation, and an eschatological, that's prophecy, emphasis. So the message of the gospel of the kingdom has both a salvation message and an eschatological or prophecy message. When John and Jesus called on the nation to repent, they were asking them to acknowledge their sinful state and their need of salvation. They were inviting the people to turn in faith to God who had promised to send a Savior. The gospel of the kingdom as preached in the tribulation will have two emphases. On the one hand, it will announce the good news that Messiah's advent is near, at which time he will introduce the messianic age of blessing. On the other hand, it will also offer men salvation by grace through faith based on the blood of Christ. This gospel will be preached by 144,000 set apart from the tribes of Israel in Revelation 7, 1, and 8. And so I have noted last time I, I concluded by looking at Revelation 14, 6, and 7, where angels will go throughout the world announcing to every human being uh, the gospel, and that occurs in the second half of the tribulation. But in the first half, the 144,000 Jews that are saved, those aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're, they're not Mormons. Uh, they're not some sort of elite group within the church. The text is very clear, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's described in Revelation 1 through 8. They're also mentioned in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, because they will have been martyred then by the middle midpoint of the second half of the tribulation. There's also the two witnesses during the first half of the tribulation mentioned in Revelation 11.3. So these will all be responsible for getting the gospel to every nation, uh, tribe, and tongue. That's, that's a worthy goal for the church age, but it is not based on this passage. We are, will not reach everyone in the church age. A lot of missionary organizations have that as their motivation, but that is not what the prophetic text indicate. Second question we're looking at is, what is this abomination of desolation mentioned in verse 15, and how does that connect to other prophecies? In Matthew twenty-four fifteen, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And then in parentheses, Jesus says, whoever reads it, let it, or Matthew inserts this, whoever reads it, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so what we see here is that uh, there's this event called the abomination of desolation. It is an event that would be known to his listeners, known by his disciples, because it is written in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament doctrine. It's not a church-age doctrine. This is a Jewish prophecy from a Jewish prophet in the Old Testament. And he is speaking about, in that context, about something that will happen to Israel in the future. This is written to Jewish believers during the future time Jesus is talking about called, that we refer to as the tribulation. And it is a warning that when they see this, they are to flee. Those who are in Judea. It doesn't say those who are in Judea and Samaria. 
It doesn't say those who are in Washington, D.C. or Houston, Texas or Paris or London. It says those who are in Judea. That would include Jerusalem. Okay, so those who are there are to flee. Now, another thing I want to point out here is that word therefore. As we look at this text, I pointed out that the progression, the timeline, is indicated by that word then. For we see see Jesus use this after verse 8 when he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. He says, then, that's the next thing, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Verse 10, and then, following that, many will be offended. Following that, verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Uh, So there's progression all the way through that. Then there's a break in that timeline. Because what you see in verse 15 is the word therefore. Therefore always indicates drawing some sort of inference or conclusion from something that's been said. So as I pointed out, what we have is the first four verses of this, 4 through 8, talk about the first half of the tribulation. There have been, as I pointed out, some prophecy teachers who have said that that just represents trends in the church age and then starting in verse 9 you get into the tribulation period and then verse 15 with the mention of abomination of desolation that that is the midpoint that's not quite correct the first half is 4 through 8 the second half is 9 through 14 but if you notice 9 through 14 is mostly really bad news these are bad things that are going to happen In the first half is going to be bad. The second half is going to be worse. And in the second half, you're going to see the rise of of hostility towards Israel. You're going to see uh, many who are further deceived, not offended, but they are entrapped by deception. Uh, They will betray one another. They'll hate one another. There'll be uh, an increase over the first half in the rise of many more false prophets and deception. There'll be lawlessness. And will abound and the love of many will grow cold. They'll just dry up. They'll be so concerned with self-preservation that they won't care about anybody else. And so that's the second half. That's all bad news. There's no good news there. What in the world are we going to do? That would be the natural question that would occur to us if we read about how bad the next, if we read that and someone said the next three and a half years, you're going to lose everything. You'd say, how in the world am I going to survive? Well, Jesus gives that answer. That's the therefore, starting in verse 15. This fits typical, uh, a typical way in which Jews wrote things. They would give a summary overview and then come back and deal with the specific. For example, Genesis chapter 1, uh, down through 2-4, you have the seven days of creation. And then in uh, 2-4 or 2-5, you have the start of the story about how man was created. Well, that all happened on the sixth day. So the first part gives you the overview of the seven-day framework, the seven consecutive 24-hour days of, of the creation week. And then chapter 2, verse 5 starts. It goes back to the sixth day and gives a lot more specifics on what happened on the sixth day. That's the pattern here. You have the overview of the seven years in verses uh, 4 through 14, and then starting in verse 15 uh, down through 28, you're going to come back and just focus on the specifics in, in the middle. And so basically what, what Matthew is saying, what the Lord is saying and the way he's teaching this, is that you're going to have all of these bad things happen. And the question that that raises is how do we escape 
This is how you escape is what he is saying. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's going to be the key event that's going to trigger this last half that's going to be so bad. When you see it, drop everything instantly. Don't try to get your go bag. Don't try to get your money out of your bank account. Don't try to get food out of uh, the pantry because this is going to last a long time. You can't take enough money or anything. Just immediately drop everything that you're doing and flee. So what is this event that happens? Well, it's called the abomination of desolation as Daniel the prophet spoke. And so we need to look at a very important passage in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 uh, through 27 is one of the most significant prophetic passages in the Bible. There's so much here. I've covered this before. You can find other uh, messages where I detail all the chronology. But this is a specific forecast, a specific timeline that the Lord revealed to Daniel for his people and for his holy city, that is Jerusalem. So so it's a timeline that if you understand it, and we're supposed to understand it, that if you can count the days, then you can figure out when the Messiah is going to be cut off, and you can figure out uh, when the end is going to come when the Messiah establishes his kingdom. So the framework is given at the very beginning. The, uh, the, the what is given here. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So he's talking to Daniel. So your people is definitely going to be Jews, not Gentiles. Your holy city is not Babylon. It's not Rome. It's Jerusalem. And then six purposes are described there. That's the answers the question why. Why is this timeline being given? Why is God waiting this long? What's he going to do? He's going to finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal of vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. This is all related to Israel. God is going to bring to a conclusion all of the promises that he has made to Israel within time to bring in their kingdom. And so this is uh, his outline here for finishing his plan to reconcile Israel to himself for their sin and to bring in the promised kingdom. Then verse 25, uh, the angel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand. Now what that means is that A, you can understand this, and B, you're supposed to know it. Okay, every one of us is supposed to understand it and know it so that you can communicate it to others so that it will give you confidence, okay? And especially at that time when Israel was out of the land and they were captives in Babylon, it is a confirmation of God's promise that they're going to go back to the land and God will fulfill all of his promises to Israel. So the angel says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command that we can identify in history, and it happened uh, on March 5th, and I, I don't remember the date right now. It's about 450-something or other. I, I forget it right now in the ancient world. When Artaxerxes issued a decree to Nehemiah to take the uh, Jews back to the land and to rebuild the fortifications. They had already rebuilt part of the city, but as you'll see at the end, the, not only will the street be rebuilt again and the wall the wall wasn't rebuilt. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. So that's why we can date it to Artaxerxes, thing, uh, Artaxerxes' decree. So from the going forth 
to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So this is seven plus 62 is 69. 69 periods of seven. The, the phrase translated weeks is really a poor translation. It's six, or it's 70 periods of seven. So it could be 490 days, 490 weeks, 490 years. The only thing that works is 490 years. So you have uh, six, 7 plus 62 equals 69 times 7 periods. Okay, so that would be 7 years equals 483 years. If you multiply that by 360 days, because in Scripture uh, Israel used a 360-day uh, lunar calendar. You have a, you go 360 days. That comes out to 173,880 days. But it's seven years short of that 490-year period. The what is described in in uh, verses uh, in Daniel 9:26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. So that indicates that there's a that, that the the timeline stops. You go to 483 years, and God hits the pause button. After that, the Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. See, he dies for others. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. His people, that's the Roman army of Titus, is the army that destroyed the city and the temple in A.D. 70. Now, Titus didn't want to destroy the temple. He had given orders to his soldiers not to destroy the temple, but they were so angry at the resistance they had met from the Jews that they went ahead and disobeyed his orders, and they burned down, completely destroyed uh, the temple. The gold melted and ran down into the cracks between the stones, which they got uh, pry bars to pry them apart so that they could get to the gold, and that is uh, why all the stones are no, no stone is left on top of another, as Jesus prophesied. So that's we're still in that pause. Then what will happen in the future, 927, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's a seven-year period. It's that confirmation of a covenant. It's the making of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel that begins that seven-year period. It's not the rapture. The rapture is before that. We don't know how much time is going to be in the transition between the rapture and the signing of this covenant. Could be a few weeks, could be a few months, could even be a few years. So then he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, so that's halfway into a seven-day period, a seven-year period, so that's three and a half years. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice. And offering. So he allows sacrifice and offering in a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount for the first three and a half years. What's on the Temple Mount right now? It's a Muslim atrocity. It's the Dome of the Rock. And it's a, it's a blasphemous atrocity because inside there's all these Arabic scriptures that are written that are all, uh, taken from the Quran to say, stay that Jesus is not God, that Jesus is only a prophet. The Dome of the Rock is an apologetic against Christianity and for Islam. It is a blasphemy 
to show that it is uh, that that Islam is better than Christianity. That's why, if you stand on a level with it, you can see that the Dome of the Rock is higher than the domes on top of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is a political, theological statement against Christianity. Islam hates Christianity. They are set on world domination. This last week I read a CBS survey that was taken that said that 67% of Democrats and 20% of Republicans believe that Islam is no more violent than any other world religion. It's not any more violent than Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or Christianity. How can anybody say that? That just shows the ignorance that's out there. And with all that has been said and taught in the last 15 years since 9-11, you would think people would be more aware than they are, but they're not. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So the first half of this period is going to be a time of peace for Israel. They're going to be allowed to have observance. Of course, it's apostated temple. They don't recognize Jesus as Messiah. And then halfway through, the Antichrist is going to break the covenant. He's going to violate uh, the sanctuary. He's going to cease and and completely bring to a halt all of this all of the uh, sacrifices and offerings. And then he is going to do something that is referred to as an abomination that makes, uh, that desecrates, literally desecrates, uh, the temple. And so he's going to do something there that is going to just be the highest act of blasphemy. Now, there was an event in history that occurred that is a type of this, and that occurred under Antiochus IV, who was called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was a Syrian king, and he was part of the uh, Antiochene dynasty that had succeeded uh, uh, Alexander the Great after his death. The Greek Empire was broken up, uh, between four of Alexander's generals and the, and Antiochus received the area, uh, north of Israel, the area of Syria, Turkey, all of that area was his, his domain. One of his descendants, Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes, uh, hated the Jews. He instituted all sorts of laws against the Jews, seeking to destroy uh, Judaism, making it illegal to circumcise male infants, making it illegal to possess their own, have a copy anywhere of the Torah, all sorts of things. And he went into the um, into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig, which is an unclean animal. Sacrificed a pig in the uh, Holy of Holies, which desecrated the temple. That is a picture of the kind of thing the Antichrist will do. Now, in understanding the, what this abomination of desolation is, in Daniel 11.31, it's mentioned, um, mentioned again that forces shall be mustered by him in context that's talking about the Antichrist. And they will defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And Daniel 11.36 says some more about the king that will do this. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He is a self-willed king over against submitting to God. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, 
and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. That's the time of Jacob's wrath, the time of the tribulation period. For what has been determined shall be done. And so there is a clear statement there in uh, 11.31 and 36 that this relates to the end-time ruler known as the Antichrist. Daniel 12.11 states the same thing from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away. That goes back to Daniel uh, chapter 9, verse 27. From that time, the midpoint of the tribulation and the abomination of desolation is set up. That's at the midpoint. There'll be a period of 1,200 and 90 days, and that refers to the extended period after the 1,260 days. There's another 30 days when there's a mopping up operation and there's uh, judgments that take place and things of that, of that nature. The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. He's described in Daniel 7, 7 as a little, little horn. There are these, this horrible beast that has 10 horns, those ten horns represent the um, uh, represent the the ten nation confederacy of the Antichrist. And in Daniel seven eight, it talks about this little horn as an arrogant horn, as a, a boastful leader. And Daniel says that while he was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and the three of the first horns were pulled out by their roots. This shows extreme conflict and violence that the Antichrist is going to, uh, is going to uh, completely smash three of the kings in order to bring them under his dominion. And so this is uh, described Daniel chapter 7. Now, when we get into the New Testament, we get some more information about this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of the Lord, referring to this time period of the tribulation, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now, some people take that as apostasy because the noun is apostasia, but the verb form of that word is often used of a departure, and so many uh, uh, dispensationalists understand this to not be the falling away or apostasy, but it is the departure, and I, that's what I believe, and it refers to the rapture of the church, that the rapture of the church has to come first, and then the revealing of the man of sin, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, and he opposes, he will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the abomination of desolation. He will uh, take his seat in the Holy of Holies. He will claim to be God, claim to speak for God, and then he will build an idol, an image of himself that he will place there. And in Revelation 13, 4, uh, this is further described. Uh, Revelation 13, the first part describes the Antichrist, second part describes a false prophet. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things. That's the Antichrist, the first beast, a, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's the last half of the tribulation. The first half, he consolidates his power leading up to the abomination of desolation. And then he's given authority to rule the world during the second half. And in verse 14, talking about the role of the second beast, the false prophet, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do 
in the sight of the beast, at telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. He's going to create, the false prophet will create a miracle that will bring the image to life in the Holy of Holies. And so everybody will fall into this deception on the earth. This is the sign. Jesus said, when you see this sign, you just get out of Dodge as fast as you can. You don't go to the bank. You don't hit the ATM machine. You don't grab your, your, your go bag. You don't get your weapons. You don't do anything. You just get out immediately. Now, that's not talking about anybody other than those who are in, in Judea. So this is what happens now. So what we've seen is that this describes a desecration of the Jewish temple in Daniel 11.31 and 2 Thess 2.4. Secondly, we've seen that the ruler stops all regular sacrifices in the temple, Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. Third, an idol of the ruler is placed in the Holy of Holies, Daniel 11.31 and 12.11, and Revelation 13.14 through 15. That should be, and then the image is brought to life again, Revelation 13, 14 through 15. So, as we've decided who the abomination of desolation is, what that describes, and how it connects with other prophecies, now the third question, what should be their response? And who's responsible? Well, we've already answered that mostly. Those who are responsible are those who live, the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians living in Judea. It's not for anybody else, and it's only going to be Jewish Christians who think that Jesus means something and should be obeyed, which tells us that those who flee into the wilderness are already believers in Jesus as Messiah. There may be a few exceptions, but they're, they're, they're going to be those who listen to Jesus. So they are individually saved already. The reason I make that point is when we get to the end of the tribulation, and uh, and they call upon the name of the Jews, uh, uh, Jesus corporately, and he's coming to save them. That's to rescue them, not to individually justify them. Revelation, uh, excuse me, Matthew twenty four seventeen to 20 says, Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Don't run by your gun safe on the way. Okay? Don't hit the ATM machine. Leave. Don't take anything with you. Uh, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. You're working out in the backyard. Go, leave. Don't even run into the house. And the reason is, is this going to be so severe that the sooner you can get away, the better, and the opposition is going to be terrible. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, because as you know, ladies, if you've been pregnant, it's tough to move. And you have somebody else, another life to be taken care of. And so it would be more difficult. So Jesus says to pray. Pray for this. Pray that your flight may not be in winter when the weather can be quite cold and there's snow in the hills or on the Sabbath. And so Revelation 12.6 picks this up and says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, that's in the mountains of Judah, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, who's going to nourish her? The Lord is. This is like the Exodus. When they left when they left Egypt, even though they had a lot of material possessions that they took with them, God sustained them every day by giving them manna. I think God's going to do another miracle very similar to that 
when they are in the wilderness during the second half of this tribulation period, they're going to leave and they're going to cross over into into what is now Jordan, but God is the one who's going to nourish them. That's what the text says. He prepared a place for them, and he's going to nourish them. He will provide for their their food. Now, where do they go? Micah 2.12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. The Hebrew word for a sheepfold is basra. Okay, Basra, it means a sheepfold. And uh, like a flock in the midst of their pasture, they shall make a loud noise because of so many people. They are going to be hidden in a special area. And I believe that this is going to be uh, in an area over near uh, uh, Petra today. Revelation 12.8 says that this is going to be energized by Satan in verses 8 and 9 when Satan is cast from heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation period. That is when he's going to come to the earth. He will indwell the Antichrist, and then he's going to make the Jews his target. In 12.12 we read, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the main child, to to the male child. And so Israel is going to be rescued. Revelation 12:14 says, and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that's Israel, in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the presence of the spirit. Now, this is going to be a miraculous provision. The imagery of the two wings of the great eagle, that's just a figure of speech, that's first found in Deuteronomy 32.10, talking about how God rescued the Jews of the, of the Exodus generation. Uh, there we read, he found him, that's Israel, in a desert land, that's Egypt, and in the wasteland, a howling of wilderness, of wilderness he encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. That is how God God is described as protecting Israel at the time of the Exodus. That same imagery is carried over to the way he will protect Israel during the second half of the tribulation. That is, those Jewish believers who flee from Jerusalem. And it is at this place called Basra that there's going to be a great war when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and destroys the armies of the Antichrist there, as stated in Isaiah 34, 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Here's a map showing Basra, Petra down in this area Here's the whole wilderness area of Judah. So this is down south and just over into the area of of modern Jordan. Here's another site. So this is the entryway into Petra. You probably saw pictures of it in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So we've gone through answering our questions. And now the fourth question, the next question, excuse me, 
Let me get to question five. We've looked at how God's going to protect them. And fifth question, what does it mean that the days will be cut short? Basically, and I'll review this again when I come back, what this means in Matthew 24:22, and unless those days were shortened, it doesn't mean that they're going to be any shorter than the seven years or the, or the uh, time, times, and a half a time, or the 1,260 days. What it says is that they will, uh, he will reduce the duration. So the 1,260 days is a reduction already. The seven years is a reduction. God's just not going to let it go on and on. By ending it at seven years, he will end it. Israel will survive. The human race will not eradicate itself. It does not mean that that uh, it's going to be c- cut short from what has been described in Scripture. So verse 22 says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Isn't talking about justification salvation. It's talking about physical deliverance from the wars that will take place at that particular time. So we come to the last question, and the last question is, uh, what does that do for us? What should be our response? And I have three things that we should be reminded of as we think about this. First of all is if God can provide for Israel during that intense, horrible time of economic collapse and of political collapse, if God can provide for them, then God can provide for us in whatever situation we're in. Second, if God can protect them in that environment where everything breaks down and there's no nation that uh, is not against them and there's no nation or army to protect them, if God can protect them in that situation, God can protect us in any situation. And the third application is that, that we should do everything we can to tell others about Jesus Christ so that they are not in danger of going through this tribulation period with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see the precision with which your prophecy in the past has been fulfilled in the Daniel 70th week leading up to the coming and the cutting off of Messiah. And Father, we pray that as we study this, we will be reminded constantly that that if you can provide for Israel in the wilderness, you can provide for Israel in the future during the tribulation period. If you can protect them and sustain them in those extreme circumstances, then our petty little problems and difficulties uh, you can easily provide for and that we need to learn to trust you and walk by faith much more consistently than we do. Father, we pray that if there there's anyone listening that doesn't want to go through this period, that wants to understand how they can go to heaven, that this answer is simple. It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that all you have to do is trust him, and that is applied to you, and you will have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the applications we need in our own lives. In Christ's name. Amen.